Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we're now on our fifth year, but it's true. And it's only because of you, the listeners. And if you'd like to see us stick around for another five years, there are a few simple things that you can do that would really, really help us out. And I would be endlessly appreciative. Number one, share our episodes with your friends. If you get something out of these episodes, I'm sure they will too. So please share us with your friends. Number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram and tag me and our guests too. My Instagram is at audio, And let me just let you know that we love seeing ourselves tagged in these posts. Who knows? We might even respond. And number three, leave us reviews and five stars, please, anywhere you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again, I want to thank you all for the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never ever charge you for this podcast and i will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way possible all i ask in return is a share post and a tag now let's get on with it hello everybody welcome to the urm podcast i've got another one of those awesome producer and artist episodes that we used to do back in the day i really feel like i should do more of these anyways my guests today are Michael Stringer, who's the guitar player and songwriter uh, for the band Spirit Box, used to be in I Wrestled with Bear once. Spirit Box has a song that just came out called Holy Roller that is just sick. It's really, really good. You should check it out. And his producer, Daniel Bronstein, is you know musician, songwriter, producer, engineer, mixing engineer, mastering engineer out of L.A. He owns a DB Music Studios and... Uh, he mainly works on pop, actually, but he's got a metal background. He helped found the band Volumes, and uh, he's badass. I'll stop talking and introduce you guys, Mike Stringer and Daniel Bronstein. Daniel Bronstein and Mike Stringer, welcome to the URM podcast. Hey. Hi. Nice to be here. How's it going? <laughs> it's going pretty well. How are you guys holding out? Pretty good. We're a little bummed because we were supposed to be, like, you know, recording next, you know, end of next month but you know i think we're we're both we're all doing pretty well yeah it's it's weird for us because where where i live because it's it's kind of like a, a make-believe land at the moment there, where do you live uh victoria bc canada vancouver island oh okay that's make-believe land anyways yeah it really it, there's, is there's that aspect of it but there's just not many cases so you know we're all like going out to restaurants and going to the gym and stuff meanwhile you know Dan and the world's yeah, burning you. down. Yeah, Dude. everyone is just living in a crazy, crazy situation at the moment. So just watching it on the news and stuff has just been insane. <laughs> it's nuts. California is pretty bad right now as far as like yeah. the number of cases and stuff. So yeah, everyone around here is just everyone's masked up. You know, everyone's pretty pretty freaked out about it. Well, you know, a lot of people are. Some people aren't. But <laughs> yeah, that's probably the yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been uh, it's been a trip. It's been interesting, like doing sessions too, because you know if if I'm in here with like more than one person, like we're all wearing masks, like you know during our sessions, and like it's um you know because I share my studio with my business partner Zach, so sometimes we'll have you know six to eight people in at the same time, and everyone's just wearing masks. You know, we have air filters going like constantly and 
sanitizing all the surfaces and yeah. <laughs> What's it like recording people with masks on? It seems interesting. They got to take it off. Like if we're doing vocals. <laughs> really? <laughs> no surprise. No, it was funny. My, my buddy was over and, and he was like laying down like a, a little scratch vocal thing. And he had, he had the mic up and, and I was, I was tracking him and I was like, dude, you sound pretty muffled. And I look back and he's got his mask on. I was like, dude, take it down. <laughs> For some reason you sound like you're singing through a paper bag. Yeah. What could it be? I was like, dude, where's all your, where's all your sibilance? You're, why are you yeah. like DS right now? Yeah, why is, why is my mic being all weird? It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, I basically haven't left the house since March. Like, wow. I've gone to the pharmacy a few times mm -hmm. and I had to get a, uh, I had to get a scope in my stomach for gastritis in June. And, but besides that, like I have been home since March. You're one of the good ones. Yeah. You're being responsible. Well, uh, I'm, I'm one of the paranoid ones. <laughs> so, yeah yeah i mean I, I think it's better to be paranoid at this point than the other Absolutely. it's like even where we live people are getting way too comfortable and um even though travel is not open back up you know there there are small clusters of cases that are appearing out of nowhere and uh you know everyone's just too comfortable so i, I can definitely see us even though we have gotten to the point where like people are kind of somewhat back to normal i can see it kind of reverting back pretty quick I've got a personal reason for it because uh, I got swine flu 10 years ago Word. when wow. everybody thought yeah. it was a hoax. <laughs> yeah. And uh, like almost died from it. So it was so like Damn. my memory of this sort of thing is that it's real and you don't want it. So I've just been like, fuck it. I'm staying home. Yeah. Yeah. Till the world's normal. No, I know a lot of people that have had it. My, my uh, great uncle, he's like 70 and he was like within just an inch of, of death pretty much from it but he recovered wow, he's in the God. high risk group he was in the high risk group but yeah he was working on construction sites you know so he basically everyone on the site got sick most people didn't die from it one other guy did that he was working with so that's like the only person i know that's actually like perished from it but i do know of a lot of people that have had it around me it's like you just pretty much at this point in cali it's like everyone knows someone that's had it that's within their circle so that's pretty scary when it starts closing in like that you're like damn, like how much, how much is this circle going to close in? Like, you know, my next, you, you get a sniffle, you're like, oh shit, like, is this it? Yeah. Allergies, <laughs> you know, like I get allergies all the time. Normal seasonal allergies. I'm freaked out. Are you a hypochondriac? You know what? At all? I'm not really, man. I mean, but I think this whole thing's made everyone into a hypochondriac. Yeah. So one of the side effects of gastritis is that, uh, your throat starts hurting from the acid that goes up mm -hmm. and I've never had allergies in my life and I didn't know I had gastritis at first. So all I knew was that suddenly my throat was hurting and I was coughing mm -hmm. and at first I was like, maybe it's because I just did eight podcasts this week. <laughs> but that's never really happened in the past. Like my voice doesn't get tired and I was sniffling and uh, I definitely started to think like, how the fuck did I get this, first of all? And second of all, I hope I don't die. But then it, it turned out to not be that. I know the mental thing. God. I mean, you've been so good. Yeah. Also wanted to stop traveling. So what can I say? Yeah. There was a moment when we were on that last tour that we did that obviously got cut short where like we had a day off and I, I think I had food poisoning and <laughs> it was just like the worst day. And thankfully it was on a day off, but because it was so like such early stages of all this and people were like not 
not fully knowledgeable on what it actually was. Like we had some people on the tour being like, does Mike have Corona? Does Mike have Corona? And I was just like, man, no, it's, it's not, it doesn't cause you to, to puke excessively for a day. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, it's a, it's a respiratory thing. Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> that's just it's a tour crazy. thing. That's just, yeah, that's, that's just a, that's just a bad choice thing is what it is. You guys were on like the Corona tour. Like you, you guys were like hitting all the epicenters in your bus Thank God no one got it, right? It was crazy. Like, it was like each city that we would go to next, the one before it would be like, we're shutting down. And <laughs> it just, you know, literally up until the last week, it was just, it was just, a, we we all knew it was just a matter of time before this thing was like, yeah, this is, this is totally done. Maybe you're widespread. Yeah, I, I, I am the epicenter. How does that make you feel? I, I take full responsibility after eating that bad pizza, for sure. <laughs> Mike's about to get canceled. <laughs> Did you hear about that thrash metal tour where like 15 people got it? It was, uh, it was like Exodus and Death Angel, like one, like a yeah. bunch of those old thrash bands. They came back like everyone had it basically. Yeah. I heard about that. Those guys aren't young. No, no, no. One of them did almost die. The drummer from Death Angel ended up in the ICU for like several weeks. Oh God. That. That's horrible. Yeah. But now he survived and uh, had a religious experience or something, something crazy like that. Hmm. I bet. Yeah. I've known, I'd say about 50 people. You're on the East Coast, right? So you guys got, got hit? Yeah. Not here. I just mean like all oh, over. Oh, I see. Okay. In general. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I actually don't know that many people in the town I live in. Everyone I know is like outside. Hmm. But... In California, a ton of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of nuts. Yeah. Like I was saying, everyone knows like at least like a dozen people. Like, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. That's wild. So, Mike, your schedule obviously got fucked. Dan, what about yours? Sounds like you're still working. Yeah, still working. I, I was working throughout the whole pandemic pretty much. Obviously, I have the luxury of being able to mix remotely and stuff like that and produce remotely. And, you know, like we were for Holy Roller, like that whole song was literally done besides the first version of it, like every every revision to it and all the writing after our demo was done just on Zoom, you know, um, during the heat of the pandemic. So, I mean, it, it was like, it, it's not as great as, you know, working in person, but we got it done. I've still been able to do stuff remotely, so. Which version was done in person? Like the initial tracks or something? We did like the first writing session for that song in... January, Dan? Was that when was it was? Was that January? Oh yeah, it was like yeah, the middle yeah, of January when I came up, right? Yeah, like we it was it was hilarious because it was one of those things where we had written so much other material and then when we looked back on it, we just were like, ah, oh, we need we need a track that's just super straight to the point and just bonehead and just super heavy. And me it, we just sat there and we wrote it in like two hours. And we were laughing while we were writing it because it was just so ridiculous. Because it's so fucking heavy. And it was just like, let's go lower. Let's tune lower. Let's tune lower. And we were laughing literally like, this is so stupid. And then <laughs> we played it. We played that version of it on the ATB tour. And it was our first tour. And we just saw the response from it. And we we're like, well, maybe there's something to it. You know what I mean? Like maybe, maybe this could be a thing. And so, yeah, that's when we started working on the revisions through Zoom when we got home. That main riff is just dumb. <laughs> yeah. in a good way in the best possible way <laughs> thank you I appreciate that <laughs> it's so catchy that was a Mike Stringer special man this dude is <laughs> literally the he's he's called Mike Stringer for a reason man 
the riff man. I kind of feel like typically, at least from what I've noticed, writing on my own or with other people or from everyone I know, with the exception of bands like an Opeth or something, you know, something nuts like that, most of the time with these songs that tend to be like, that do really well but are like simple, usually you hear the story and it's like we wrote it in an hour. We wrote it in two hours. It just popped up and we were laughing the whole time. Like not overthinking, just shit it out basically. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's definitely something to be said about that. When you overthink a song too much, it's just, you can just overthink it to shit, you know, and, and you can kind of ruin it. Not to be said that there aren't great songs that were written by overthinking them, and that's for sure happened, but I feel like when you just have something come out and you just pop it out naturally and you're like, this is sick, I'm not going to stress too much over this, like, great, let's move on, you know, there's some there's some beauty in that. Yeah, you can, you can kind of hear it in even in early Spirit Box stuff because it's just like, all that stuff was done without Dan in the room. And it was, he was, because Dan's mixed and mastered all of our stuff. And it's just like, you know, when it would just be up to me, I'd be so overly critical about everything. And is this complex enough? Is this, you know, is this going to catch people's attention? And then the moment that, you know, we actually write with someone who knows what they're doing, it's like, don't overthink it. Just let's just write something good and let's just move on. And that's been the result of everything that we've released in the last since last, uh, well, blessed be rule of nines and now holy roller, you know? So it's, it's good. It, I feel like it's the right mindset to have is just to be able to let something be what it is as opposed to just being overly critical. Hell yeah. Honestly, that's the main reason that I think that bands should hire producers. For the filter. Yeah, they're, the engineering part, yeah, that, that of course that matters. But uh, that part... I think is a lot easier to learn than the creative side or the having someone to be like, no, just stop. It's good. Yeah. Big time. Sure. Yeah. Just having someone to bounce ideas off of, you know, and just to be like that filter. And I mean, you know, I've been in a million bands too. Like I know what it's like to sit there and you're writing stuff by yourself and you're like, oh man, like, is this good? Like, is this too like simple? Oh, is it too technical? Like what, you know, and without someone there that you trust, that, you know, you have a, a good relationship with to be like, no, like, I think it's good, you know, not like, in, not like, oh, you have to do it this way, but like, just to urge, you know, I'll never say like, no, like, oh, you guys have to do it this way. You have to do it my way. It's just more like, yo, like, I think I strongly urge you to do it this way because I feel like that riff's sick and we should just keep hammering in that riff and just focus in on the one good part. Because like, my thing is like, especially coming from metal, but also doing pop, you know, and a good amount of that is like, you know, there's something to be said about having a song that only has three or four parts in it. Because like, you know, those three or four parts you're going to remember. You know, if you keep hammering them in, you make sure those three parts are really good instead of having like 15 parts. First of all, you're making less work for yourself so you can go write more songs. <laughs> but also like, <laughs> it's just you're going to remember things more. And I've always just been a fan of things that are simple and that are just effective on their own. Like like a riff should be good enough to be repeated a few times. That was kind of where we like focused in on with all the new writing that we've been doing. I actually think that's where a lot of metal goes wrong is trying to cram too many different ideas into one song. If you analyze any great pop songs or great songs throughout history, usually they only do have three or four ideas that are then just 
varied up or repeated. Totally. But it's usually not going to be 15, 20 ideas. That's like a thing that's unique to the kind of metal that doesn't tend to do very well with a larger audiences for for some sure. weird reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder why that is. Yeah, definitely. That's That's been a huge learning curve for me. And that's something that Dan's definitely taught me in the last little while is just something can be simple. Something can be catchy. It can repeat. You know what I mean? As yeah. with before, I'm like, oh, I got to cram all this stuff. I got to, you know, more notes, you know, and it's like, it's a different mindset. And I'm so glad that we're there now because, you know, growing pains are, are one thing, but being able to actually you know, learn what makes something catchy and being able to actually come up with a song yeah. together is just such a huge accomplishment, right? So yeah, it's good. But you got to do the technical to get there. Like, I feel like a big part of like the reason that, you know, Mike, for instance, is like, he's such a, a great guitar player. He's such a great writer. Like, Mike, you have a lot to say, like in your riffs, like you have a lot, you're not just going to sit there and like feel stoked on writing four chords when you know that you can do so much more. I feel like that's right. where it starts out, right? It's like, okay, like I have the ability to do so much. Like, why don't I do that? Why don't I put that into the song? I feel like that's that happens a lot in metal, right? Because it, it's it's a genre that's so focused on technicality, technical mastery of your instrument. You're like, okay, if I'm really good, why am I going to play four chords? Right. You know, like that that makes no sense. That's not why I'm doing this. But I think you have to you have to naturally reach that point where you want to be like, okay, I'm done playing all this shit. Like, let's dumb this shit down. You know, let's get this shit to people that don't even listen to metal and get them to be into our music. How do we do that? Maybe it's like you get to a point with your technicality where you've gotten so far with it that it's not that you're over it, but you are kind of over it. It doesn't seem as important as it did before because it's no longer taking up the same amount of brain RAM, I think. It's like just burning out, really. You know what yeah. I mean? And I mean, mm-hmm. as guitar players in this genre, we're so conditioned and trained to be, you know, something that really we're not. You go on Instagram, you go on Facebook, you look at all these clips of just these random kids that are just shredding. You don't think about, oh, that must have taken 90 takes before they put up that one clip that was perfect. You just, you see the the immediate thing of the video and you go, well, shit, I'm, you know, like I need to get my chops up, mm-hmm. you know? And then that mm-hmm. translates to your writing where you're like, well, I need to be better. When in reality, it's like, well, no, don't compare yourself. Just write what you think is catchy. You know what I mean? So I think that modern technology and social media is both the best and the worst thing to happen sure. to music. It's like the best for so many reasons. Uh, ability to get out there. The bar has been raised significantly. But one thing that I noticed, and this is like a total double-edged sword, was when my band was starting to tour at the end of like, well, mid to end of 2000s, we are starting to see more and more local bands that had like a drummer that was insane. Whereas when we first started, everybody sucked. Like no one could play a click. Everyone was just (laughs) shitty. And over the course of like five years, it changed to where... Everybody could suddenly play. Everyone was recording themselves. And uh, the thing that I noticed from talking to a bunch of these drummers who were like insane was that they had listened to a bunch of records that were kind of fake, and uh, but they didn't know that they were fake. They just figured that's how people do it. So they learned how to play like that. It was a combination of that and then watching fake videos on YouTube where they don't even know that the guitar is not plugged in. Or something. Um, right. That's a good people, point. Yeah. Yeah. People thinking that fake shit is real. 
and then try to emulate it has raised the bar, but also I think it causes people to misprioritize. Big time. I agree. Yeah, with, sure. I agree with that a hundred percent. And to master their shit. I remember like, I mean, yeah, there was that era where people were like really messing with kick drums a lot. <laughs> like I remember as Blood Runs Black came out with that album, I don't remember what it was called. Damn. It was like Divergence <laughs> or something. I don't remember what it was called. Anyway, it was one of those albums. Every song was super fast. The drums were super technical. And I just remember the kicks were so fast, like literally like, like that was the first album that I remember hearing. <laughs> Maybe Job for a Cowboy did some of that, but their shit was more alive. I, I specifically remember as Blood Runs Black being that album that had the first, like I was in my band at the time in high school and we like looked at each other. We're like, dude, we got to step it up. Like, this is like, <laughs> this is crazy. how the guy do it? Dude, I'm sure. He didn't do it. Yeah, of course. And then we kind of discovered too, because I was into recording, you know, at the time that was when I got into recording because I was in bands and I would always do our demos and stuff. I was like, oh, I can just take this kick drum and just copy and paste it a million times and we can do exactly what they do. <laughs> it was like the magic was over. We were like, all right, so whatever. We don't have to learn to, to be good. We can just fake it like them. We kind of got, we caught on to it early. You know what's so weird about that is that I think that's also a double-edged sword. Yeah. Because on the one hand, you get people who are cool to just fake things and you can't actually do it. But then on the other hand, been in situations with drummers who are incredible and it's more that the parts just not totally written. So it doesn't make sense to have him play some super intricate thing and learn it if it's just going to change or, uh, they're still human after all. So maybe want them to really, really focus on the hands. And so it just makes sense for them to not focus as much on the feet. And been in that situation with dudes that are like phenomenal drummers. So it's one of those things where I feel like if it's used the right way, it can really enhance. But at first people just went wild with it and just made so much unrealistic bullshit. Beneath, beneath <laughs> the Massacre. I remember Beneath the Massacre. You guys remember that band? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That was a bad one with the, the speed. <laughs> Despise Icon. Remember those guys? Yo, that fool could actually do it though. They could do it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard that though, I was just like, this can't, this can't be a real thing. Like this guy. And then you see the guy and he's like this jacked dude that's just like gravity blasting the whole time. You're like, oh my God. It's so much easier now to make music, right? Like it's so mm -hmm. easy to throw up superior drummer. Anyone can throw up superior drummer like and make whatever pattern they want. And it sounds so close that you just can't tell. Like so many producers are making full records with it, myself included, you know, guilty as charged, like, you know, no shame. Like, and I feel like I like music that's impressive. Like, it's so hard for me to be impressed by something nowadays. Like, I'm just super jaded. I understand. And um, we live in this era where, and especially with, with like hip hop and pop and stuff like that. I mean, yo, like whole albums are just loops. They're just splice loops. No one's even creating the key parts. No one's creating the drum parts. No one's creating the bass parts. The vocalist is auto-tuned, melodyned to shit. I can't even tell the difference between a lot of vocalists now because of the amount of tuning. Once again, guilty as charged. But I'm just saying, like, it's kind of the, the time we live in, it's tricky because we used to have that kind of barrier to entry where it's like, yo, if you can't play this song, you can't record it. 
And bands yeah, had I, bands had that. They'd be like, "Yo, like, dude, how are we going to go into the studio unless we can get a drummer? You know, that's good enough to nail this." But now anyone, any crappy band with a dude that just started whatever playing drums, like, they don't even have to record him. Like, they just program it and then you know edit the guitars to shit and and edit everything to shit and like, you don't have to be good to sound good. So, that's my rant about that. <laughs> Obviously, I know you guys agree. I'm just, that's why I'm just saying. I'm just ranting. Well, there's a flip side though, I think. And I completely agree. But the flip side is that at least it's, I feel like in some ways it's uh, easier to identify when someone's amazing in some ways, just because in order to stand out, they have to be so amazing. Basically, it's like you said, it's so easy to basically make something that's mediocre or pretty good. Like, it doesn't even take that much talent. It just takes a little bit of skill. Like, you can't have inverse talent, but, like, barrier to entry is low. So in order to stand out, you have to be fucking exceptional. True. Like an Alex Rudinger. Yeah. And so, uh, and that's the thing that I think can't be faked. Like, people on that level, you can't, you cannot fake that shit. And so I've seen a level of musicianship now that I've never seen before. Yeah. Definitely. The bar has been raised for sure. Yeah. So I feel both ways about it. The only thing I don't like is getting inundated with garbage. Right. That's the thing I don't like. It's too much. Yeah. I mean, even from a guitar player standpoint, you definitely can point the guys that are quantizing and copying and editing and blatantly just using the same, you know, the same pick attack note for each section of that thing. You know what I mean? And it's just, I don't know. I, I just, I just find it so much more impressive when you find someone who's actually like, doing that shit live and there are mess ups and it's human. You know what I mean? Like, yep. I don't know. And I think in the metal genre, we're so conditioned to it, to everything having to be perfect. Every take has to be perfect. There can't be, you know, this like natural slide of the hand up the fretboard where it's, you know, you hear a little bit of like a, you know, a a scrape or something. You know what I mean? Like, no, 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 no. no. Gotta take that out. That's too human. You know what I mean? And I I don't like that. I I like I like hearing at least a bit of natural playing, you know, and same same with drummers and, and stuff. I, I feel like that kind of separates a lot is the guys that are still into that because there's too much of the other. There's too much of the oh, just just play just play that section, we'll cut that and yeah. then we'll just like quantize and then we'll copy and paste and I don't know. I think it, it. I think that's what makes shit stale nowadays. Is just hearing that robot quantize shit. Yeah, dude. Slipknot's new album. Yeah, dude. So good. Phenomenal. Jay Weinberg. So good. Yeah, great. At doing exactly like what you're saying with like keeping it loose, but just like it's got so much personality. It's just listening to that album and like watching him play makes you realize like how much a drummer's loose energy can add to. The aggression of a song you know i mean that yeah. dude obviously he like studied joey because joey was like the king of that like being like so just like angry and almost sloppy but not but like think yeah. about what slipknot would have been if the drums are just perfect like it's not that's not slipknot definitely and i mean and when you go see them live it, it's not like you're getting anything different you're getting what's on the record as yeah. with so many other guys it's like because they do all of that pre-work where they're quantizing and copy and pasting people go and expect a perfect performance and then they don't hear it and they go, well, that guy sucks. You know? So it's like almost like shooting yourself in the foot where you're like, see, I can do it perfectly. And then you go and be a human for a minute. Dude, you know, that's why I hate vocal overlaps. My whole thing is like, dude, if you have to write a vocal overlap into your chorus, 
first of all, how are you going to perform that live? Because that's impossible, right? Obviously, you can have the guy, you know, your guitarist, like, go and sing in and punch in over him. But also, I think it makes songs less catchy when things aren't performable just all in one. Because, like, you know, I always, like, if the crowd is going to sing along to your chorus and you have, like, a line overlapping with another line and another thing, and then there's, like, a left and right that comes out of nowhere that's filtered, and then it's, like, back here, like, it's hard to sing that back. So I'm just not a fan of that shit. When you're producing, uh, are you thinking about the band's live show? The reason I'm asking is because I've worked with and known some producers who are also good producers, but their philosophy is not my fucking problem mm-hmm. if they can't do it. Like, I know this one guy that would was good at producing solos, and but the stuff that he would have people do is completely unrealistic. Like, like huge jumps, for instance, with, like, no gap between them. Like, they're on the first fret, then they're on the 18th fret. Yeah. And there was no time to get up there. It's just so, and something that anyone who's played live would know that you would fuck that up. It's not going to happen. That producer's whole thing was, like I said, not my problem. Well, listen, I'm not, I'm not like a purist where I'm like, oh, like, you have to record perfectly. Like, <laughs> play from start to end perfect or we not do the take. Like, no, like, it has to be, it has to be done tastefully. I think there's always times in a song where you want to kind of do something that's like impossible for the good of the song. But I think that with vocals, I have a harder time being okay with that just because I think that takes away from the sing-along value of it. Guitars and like, you know, bass or like whatever the things, to me, the vocals are always the center point of the song. And like, I always want that to be as like sing-alongable as possible, whatever you call it. You can sing it back without having to, to worry about doing something that's impossible. Dan cares a lot. Like we'll be working on stuff and we'll, we'll go through like 10, 15 minutes of questions of like, now, would this be better if it was like this? Think about if you're playing at this venue and there's this many people here, are there going to, like like, like you just said, are there going to be this many people singing along if we do that? Or should we, you know what I mean? And it's like, he, he cares so much about the whole picture, not just, oh, this sounds cool. Let's just throw it on there. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's a, it's a whole thing. It's, it's, it's not just like, oh, you know, this sounds great. It's, it's, Honestly, like from the from playing it live to even like you know we'll we'll be writing a song. He's like, oh, I can already see the music video, dude. Like it's gonna be like this. You know what I mean? So he's he's a whole picture type of guy. He's not just like, oh, let's just piece this together and whatever you deal Thanks, with. Mike. It, you know, <laughs> I was doing a podcast with uh, Mark from Suicide Silence, and he was telling me that their approach to writing has always been, uh, how will this translate live? Yeah. And so yeah. the knowing that you can really actually hear it in all their riffs. Like they won't let riffs into their songs unless they know that they're going to go over live like crazy good. And I guess it's no surprise that they became like the biggest deathcore band because those riffs really do translate live, but they think about that. It's like a, it's a conscious move. Dude, they're so good. To do that. Yeah. Yeah. It's smart. Yeah, it's super it really smart. is. I I just think it's it's just so much more exciting to write music, especially heavy music, when you're imagining the show. Whenever I write riffs or like, you know, produce produce a band or something, like I'm always imagining how is this gonna feel live? Cause that's what gets me excited. I mean, I think that's the most exciting part. I think up until 2020, music was a live performance art. 
And uh, I think that, that, you know, that's what it should be catered to for the most part. Um, dude, especially metal is like so fun when you write a part. Like when we were writing the Holy Roller Breakdown, we were like, oh, dude, like imagine, oh, I don't have my keys on me, but we, we have this, <laughs> we have this joke. We have this joke. I, I'm from Southern California. So like the kids around here all wear carabiners at shows with their keys on them. When I grew up going to shows, when there's like a breakdown, it's like dun, dun, dun. And there's like that big silence in it. You always hear the mosh pit and you hear all the keys jangling in between the notes. And so like, we'll, we'll, we'll like, like when we were doing that breakdown, we were all busting out our keys. Like it's going to be like, <laughs> dun. We're like, oh dude, that's going to be so sick. Is that what that is? What? I mean, are some of the... Is some of the sound design in that song like actual stuff that you were keys and that you recorded, or are they? <laughs> no, but we definitely, we I definitely had them out when we were recording it. Yeah, <laughs> we definitely should have left it in. the The other one that that Dan always does too is the woo, and yeah. like basically all you hear is like you you will hear this empty space. You'll hear the keys, and then guaranteed, someone someone in the audience just goes woo to the point where when we were recording in L.A. We, North Lane had a show and Dan couldn't come. And we went, me and Courtney, we went and watched the show and I was filming a part. And I think actually Arrow was playing and there was just this crazy heavy breakdown that started. And I started filming. And then uh, we went back to the studio and I showed Dan. I was like, dude, yeah, they were so good live. Watch this. And I hit play in the video and it's instantly like I hit play and there's like this huge gap in the, in between, in the, in between the breakdown. And all you hear in the background is just like literally two people going, at, the, at different times. And it was just so funny because it's like, yeah, it's exactly what you say every single time. Yeah. <laughs> so funny. So we were doing a lot of that. It's like a, it's like a big inside joke we, we got around around here. Mm-hmm. What well, I'm wondering, Mike, is uh, how did you manage to get yourself out of the too technical headspace or was it through working with Dan? Like, Did you have to do anything mentally to just get that voice to shut the hell up? I think it's just getting older and also working with Dan at the same time. Cause like us, us and Dan, we've been working with Dan since the beginning, but like I said before, like it's, it's always just been like, send him the files and then he'll mix it master. And Boring. yeah. And, <laughs> and I mean, I think after doing it myself for so long and working with an engineer and just sending it off the moment that we were actually able to get into a room and start recording and writing, it had been a couple of years and I just got burnt out. You know, I, I had been burnt out from my previous, I used to play in a band called I Wrestled a Bear once mm-hmm. and playing with that band and moving into Spirit Box, I was already burnt out of just like, you know, just playing too many notes and just trying to be dissonant for the sake of it and going crazy and flashy. So that jump into Spirit Box was a whole thing for me of trying to tame all that. And then as we progressed with that, it's like things just kind of got dumbed down more and more and more. And yeah, I, I think it just got to a point where we all were just like, you know what, let's let's just try to write, you know, pop structure songs and dance. And that's that's been a huge influence from Dan is him just, you know, holding our hand along the way and basically just being like, you know, this is okay that this riff comes back twice. This is okay that this chorus is is kind of boneheady. You know what I mean? We're th- Sorry to cut you off. I was going to say, you always kind of like, I feel like with the start of Spirit Box, that was your goal too. I could tell like, you know, going from like Fallen Archaea and I Wrestle the Bear once to that, I could tell right off the bat the songs were so much simpler. So it was like, you really set out to do that. But like you said, it took 
it took you doing it a bunch of times yeah. to be like, all right, let's dumb it down. And then it took me coming in to reinforce that with you, you know? Yeah. Um, Big time. I think it, you know, I think it was going to happen anyway, but I, I'm happy to be the catalyst that helped to like facilitate it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then what you're saying about, you know, making riffs too bonehead and stuff is, is like, a big part that I was like super happy to come in and help with was like leaving space for the vocal more than anything. Right. And that would, that's been yeah. like such a big thing that that's been like our mantra since we started writing. It was like, yo, Courtney's so fucking amazing. Like, you know, she's really the centerpiece of the band and we got to leave space for her. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of where we're at now. I think we have a pretty good, like pretty clear idea of like how, like what we want. Um, arrangement wise and how much space we want moving forward which is cool too yeah i think a big part of dan coming into play too and actually working with him is that before when it was just kind of on my shoulders i wasn't considering courtney in the writing process i would just present a full song and then she would just do her thing yeah she would just write to that song but when dan you know working with him it's like no no no, we're gonna write the parts and then immediately once we're done writing the parts Courtney's going to get on the mic and she's going to just like you know mumble or just say random words to a melody and he's right like 99% of the time the first thing that comes to her head roughly is is, is what sticks like the melody her first her first choice is always there so giving her that time to actually do that while the rest are being made as opposed to it being presented to her has made a huge difference and that's been Dan's thing this whole time it's just like we have to work together you can't just throw her on top she's like the most crucial element of this so that's been huge mike's dreading me doing the bathtub analogy <laughs> what's the bathtub analogy <laughs> why do, do you say it a lot no i've said it to them like a billion times but it's not even my it's a great analogy. analogy i thought it just stuck with me it stuck with me so much a billion and one won't hurt you know yeah all right Go for yeah it. a million and one yeah so do you know who lewis bell is no he, he produces Post Malone. Okay, so he's good. Yeah, he's awesome. <laughs> he's awesome. He was on a podcast, and I was listening to him, and he was just talking about vocal production and how vocals fit into a song. And he was like, you know, the problem with a lot of artists and producers is they'll produce a track, and then once the track's fully done being produced and it's like full, then it's like, okay, cool, let's put vocals on it. And he was saying the analogy is like, if you had a bathtub and you filled it up all the way with water to the top, that's your production. You're like, cool, my production is done. It's all full, it's completed. And then it's like, okay, cool, time to put the vocals in. Then the person has to get into that bathtub and then the bathtub's gonna overflow. So you didn't leave room for the vocalist. So, so it's like, you wanna have the bathtub full just a little bit, like halfway then have the person get in and then fill it up the rest of the way with whatever's needed to fill the bathtub to the right level. And that shit stuck with me. That was a great analogy. I've heard that analogy for EQ also. Sure. Basically the idea being you only have 100% that yeah. you can fill something up with yeah. and not everything can be at 100%. It'll just overload and suck. That brings me to my <laughs> next like little thing that I've been, I've been big on lately is like mixing without soloing things I think is really important and mm -hmm. not as like an across the board rule. Like Mike, you and me were just talking about this. Yeah. So like I sent Mike, <laughs> I sent Mike the stems for Holy Roller for him to do a guitar playthrough too. And he hit me up. He's like, 
dude, have you listened to the bass on this? <laughs> I was like, no, what's it sound like? He's like, dude, it's like all fucked up. Like it's ducking. Like <laughs> he's like, it's ducking at every kick hit, like, or every pick hit. Like you can't even hear the attack. It's like super fucking gnarly sounding. Not even saying like it sounded like shit. He was just kind of like, have you listened to this? And I was like, honestly, dude, I don't think I've soloed it. <laughs> I'm not surprised, man. Uh, you know, like when old records had their stems released back like 10 years ago, like Bohemian Rhapsody. And I heard like a Muse record, like a Muse song and Metallica stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Massive bands from multiple eras uh, and people were spreading, were sending the tracks around and it was just like a, a thing like listen to how fucking awesome this is but there were there were problems everywhere and yeah those recordings you just never noticed it when they were mixed yeah it's about making the whole picture right because it's, it's all context so everything can sound great on its own but you put it all in together and it sounds bad then it's what what's the point oh yeah like i i feel bad sometimes when we're doing mixed revisions and I'm like, yeah, but this part could just, you know, I'm, I'm, we're just one of those clients that are like a nightmare sometimes to deal with. We'll get up to like version eight or nine or 10. And, um, it was just funny, like with the Holy Roller thing, like, you know, we, we got to like version, what was it? Seven or something. And we're like, this is it. And mm. we were so stoked on it. And then, yeah, like when I got the stems and I, I sold the bass, I was like, huh, that's, that's crazy. But it's just funny to me because like, I feel like I am so critical about my own shit. You know what I mean? And it's not that obviously I don't trust Dan. Like, you know, he fucking kills it. It's insane. But it's just funny that hearing the whole picture, I didn't even think about that. I was just like, wow, this sounds so thick and huge. You know what I mean? And then, you know, listening to the stem of it, it's just like a whole picture thing. Like I, I would have never been able to pinpoint that. And it doesn't matter because the whole thing just sounds insane. So I'm not like what the hell you know what I mean? it's not meant to be heard as a stem yeah, yeah. exactly yeah. yeah so do you think on that topic that dan if you had soloed it and noticed all that stuff that maybe it would have distracted you from the bigger picture and maybe you would have gotten the bass sounding perfect by itself but at the detriment of the mix for sure and i think i've done that dozens if not hundreds of times in various situations i mean it's not like I won't solo anything. Obviously, if I'm hearing something wrong in the context of the whole mix, then I'll be like, okay, let me go in and see like what's wrong. Oh, okay, that's why the bass is completely blown out. <laughs> but in yeah, <laughs> it like in this case it sounded it sounded dope in the in the context of the mix, so I didn't touch it. Yeah, I think if I opened it up, I probably would have been like, ugh, like oh man, like I got my, like my fab filters like pinned red or you know i don't know i don't look i'm i'm not one of those guys that, that freaks out too much over gain staging maybe i should be why should you be i don't know i just was trying to cover my ass by saying maybe i should okay be. <laughs> but i think <laughs> when everyone's like well actually like it's very important for you to gain stage <laughs> i mean look i think it's cool to do unconventional stuff i think when it ends up sounding cool and heavy and imperfect i feel like that's the goal so why fuck with it well you you were even saying it, you were like oh that was just a trick that i did to let the kick like come out like it was like a yeah. parallel compression yeah yeah so it's like as as el just said like it's, it's not supposed to be heard soloed and on top of that it's not like we didn't 
challenge you enough by taking a song that was already an F sharp, then going to F, E, and then D sharp for the main breakdown. Like that's just stupid. So the fact that you were able to even make it punch and and make it so like those low notes were clear is just yeah. beyond anything I could even think of. And it would just be such a challenge, you know, like it's crazy. It was a challenge. Well, I could talk about the trick for the bass because like obviously it was so low when you get down to, I think the breakdown was like C sharp, right? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was D sharp actually, but D sharp, it's one yeah. of those. It doesn't matter at this point. D sharp, like, God, you know, so low. an extra octave. So literally like, I mean, like Mike tracked it on literally the best bass you could track on for that kind of music. He did a ding wall, you know, and um, that thing handles pretty much down to F, like pretty perfectly. Your low yeah. fundamental, obviously you're limited by science to where your low fundamental can actually be heard. I feel like when you're down at F, you're probably somewhere in the 50 hertz range, I want to say maybe 40 hertz to 50, I don't know. But I think when we got down to like the E and then the the B and then the C and whatever, all those low notes. It was literally just string rattling. <laughs> the string was just <laughs> rattling. So I had to take a, I took a, um, a sine wave in Serum and I just played the, the note, like the whatever. And then I used a bunch of uh, distortion to create some upper harmonics in it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're getting the next, um, the next harmonic and the next, the next. So it kind of goes, you get the next octave of the the note and then um, low past that. So there's under the bass, it kind of filled in the the harmonics for what it was missing on those low notes. So that was a cool like little trick. I hadn't done that before, but also I'd never had to mix a bass that was, you know, two octaves lower than it. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Should have been or like whatever. But I think it came out dope. Like the, I love the bass in that song. I feel like it's really heavy. Did you change tunings in the middle of the song? Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, so we'll have like, we have a few songs actually that will go from F sharp to, you know, like we have a song, Blessed B, where it's, you know, it's F sharp the whole time and then there's a breakdown that hits a low C sharp, which obviously, you know, when we record it, we just tune the guitar down, but live, we just let the the Kemper um, change the tunings for us on the fly through MIDI. Back when I tried that a long time ago, it sounded like shit. But yeah. I've heard people doing that in the past few years where it doesn't sound like shit. So I guess the technology got better. Yeah, there's with the Kemper, I, I had a fractal before and I did notice that once you kind of got down to like the ridiculous levels of going like two steps or three steps lower, quite a bit of compensation needed for the right hand. Um, with the Kemper though, I'm I'm pretty blown away by it. It's pretty it's pretty bang on. Like I'll admit Oh, you're talking that, about the delay? Yeah, like the, the yeah. latency between the, the right hand hitting versus yeah. like when it comes out. I will admit that I have to up the gain if I'm going from like, you know, in that song in particular, like F sharp to C sharp, just to kind of get that attack back. But other than that, it's it's pretty it's pretty bang on. It's pretty incredible. So I have a question for both of you. So Mike, being that uh that you have recorded yourself basically up till up till now what made you be able to be trusting enough to let somebody else take charge? And Dan, how do you go about establishing trust with a musician so they do let you take charge? Yeah, that's a good question. Definitely. I mean, I, I will I will be clear as well that like, you know, beforehand in in the other situation, we would hire an engineer to record 
my guitars and I would record bass as well. And then I would record Courtney's vocal. So I wasn't, I wasn't full on doing all of it. As far as letting Dan do his thing and, and kind of take his own liberties and everything, that's been since day one, man. Like, cause I've worked with Dan before. I first worked with Dan in 2013 on my, you know, old bands before I Wabo's last record. And, you know, Fallen Arcade. Well, Shout out. Yeah. <laughs> and when we, when we did that, it was just like, man, this guy just totally gets everything that I'm trying to do. We have the same melodic sense. Like basically I found like my producer, like soulmate in a sense, you know what I mean? And since then it was just So the like, trust was there. Yeah. Immediately. Immediately. I was so when it, trust on that album. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, like we, that album is just nuts. It's just crazy. And, and he was, he killed, he killed it. It was amazing. So when it came to spirit box stuff, since the, you know, as soon as we got the, the recording finished, it's like, okay, let's pitch this to Dan and let's hope to God that he can, you know, he'll throw us a bone and, and do it and do this. Cause I know he's a busy guy. And then when he was like, yeah, let's do it. It's ever since then, it's, it's been, you know, it's been him and I wouldn't want it any other way at this point, to be honest. So it's something I hear all the time from URM students who are first starting is that they have a serious problem getting bands to take their ideas see or even accept them in the first place. And my answer is always, they don't trust you. Like that's, that's exactly what it is because if they did trust you, they would hear you out. But obviously you just haven't earned it yet and you just got to do more work until you learn how to earn it basically. Well, look, I mean, it's something that just you have to gain over time either way. And I mean, I'm not going to lie. Like, you know, the first time that we actually worked together on writing the Spirit Box stuff was when I went up to Canada to Victoria and I stayed with them and we basically set up a little studio in uh, in the house and like we were just kind of, we just went in, right? Just like, let's go. Let's just try this and see what happens. We had no material, right? Yeah. Um, you know what, Mike? No, Mike had so had songs that he had written. But it was mostly just like riffs and stuff like that. They weren't put together whatsoever. Yeah, we basically we went in like pretty cold. And look, I knew that that I kind of obviously I'd gained your trust with Fallen Archaea for that, but I had to kind of regain the trust for this project. Um, so I feel like until the songs are you know getting done and you can start to hear it come together, it's hard to gain trust. I think once like we got a song where we were like, oh okay, cool, this is starting to feel like something real. Like, that's when I gained your guys' trust. I think, like, because I feel like I wanted to go pretty aggressive and then dial it back when it came to, like, let's just go all simple, right? And I know that was scary, but I also I know that you guys wanted that. Like, you, you asked for it, you know? You're like, yeah. Dan, like, dude, come up. Like, let's simplify these songs. Like, let's make this more accessible, we, this is what we want. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to try to come up and like, we're going to make this something that it wasn't before. We're going to go into a whole new realm. We're going to try all these new things. I was like, guys, just, just, you know, you don't have to trust me right away, but just, just like follow me, follow me down the rabbit hole. That was, yeah. that was what it was. Just like, let's just, let's just go down this hole. Let's see what happens. And, um, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I still do that. Like we do that shit all the time. Cause it's like, if you don't try something, how do you take know? my hand, <laughs> take my hand, follow me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's the thing, man. Like even, even, uh, we've done that twice. And like Dan said, like the, the first time when we were just kind of approaching it and starting it, um, in a whole new way and going about it this way, like we had nothing and he was here for a week and a half. And when he left, we had like seven songs. 
like we, we, cranked, we, were, we, we were doing that's that's productive we were doing like a song a day um, at, at one point and then he came he came the second time and same thing we did like another six it was just crazy well it's fun doing it like pop style it's fun writing metal pop style because in pop writing sessions yeah. the goal is usually you know you get in the room with a pr- couple producers a writer or two and the artists and you guys want to at least get one song you know in, in the pop world sometimes you get two songs three songs in a day and um more often than not those songs end up being like more or less what the final version ends up kind of being anyway. It's just, it's so quick and kind of going back to to what we were talking about before without where you're not overthinking songs and how that kind of makes them come out, you know, better. I think we kind of, we did that across the board and that was new because Mike was like, dude, like I'm so used to just like spending so much time on a song. Like you were, I remember you Mike was uncomfortable with the idea of doing a song quickly. You're like, shit, but like, aren't we like looking over stuff? Like, aren't we like, aren't we going too quick? Like, aren't we missing out on some, some like stuff we could put in there? Like, I'm like, no, I mean, let's just get at least the lay of the land. Let's get like a sketch. Cause I'd rather have a crappy sketch of the whole song than like a perfect verse. And then be Mm -hmm. like, okay, let's get the rest. Cause with, when you have a, a sketch of the song, you can at least like leave the studio, go sit outside, put it on your phone put it up to your ear, listen to it, you know, and be like, oh, you know, you can hear it in a different place. You could listen to it in your car and you can like drive and experience it. And then when you're doing that, you can be like, oh, you know, it would be really cool. What if we put this here and did this and did that? I feel like it's so important to listen to music outside of the studio. That's such an um, important thing to do in the writing process because your brain is actually perceiving it differently. Just literally, it's like science. You know, when you're in a different place, you're seeing different things. You're not looking at the same walls that you were playing the guitar in to write the riffs. Your brain is hearing it completely differently. Same thing when you play it for someone. When you, I feel like when I play someone a song for the first time, I hear it differently. Definitely. You hear things that you never noticed before. Yeah. Yeah, you're critical in a whole new way. Yeah. Yeah. Come say hi, Zach. Yeah, come say hi. Come say hi. Come say what's up. This is my my business partner Zach. Zach co-owns the studio with me. Whoa, Hello, Zach. What's up, Mike? I can't hear anyone, but hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. See ya. Later. You know what you were saying about getting songs done quickly fucked with your head. I think that it's because people have this idea that if things happen too fast, they didn't work hard enough. Right. And if they work hard enough, then something's wrong. Yeah. Big time. Well, that's a fallacy. Yeah. And I've I've learned that because, you know, when it was all up to me and I was writing everything, I would get to that point where I would be, you know, maybe I'd make a song in a day or something. But it would take me like two months of solid writing to get on that roll. You know what I mean? Where I'm like, damn, here we go. Like killing it. Right. But but moving going into a situation where you have nothing written, especially for metal, was such a daunting thing in my mind where I was like, man, it'd be so cool in this week and a half if we could do like, if we could get like two songs done. And then like literally first day, <laughs> literally first day, we we have three song skeletons done within an, at like an eight hour session of like even taking breaks and stuff. And I was like, damn, it's so cool just to be able to just relax and just be like, this, this is what it is and it, let's just leave it. And let's move on to something else and revisit it tomorrow, you know? And yeah, 
I think the biggest thing with that is just being kind to yourself and not being such a a hard ass when it comes to creating and everything because I think mentality and everything and having that that moment of being able to create something and and letting it be and being accepting of that is so huge because if you have that mental roadblock where it's like, oh, well, I can't get past the verse, therefore this song is not, like, let's just scrap it. You're not going to get anywhere, you know? So definitely a huge learning curve with that. Dan, how do you uh, help musicians get over that? I'm just thinking back to scenarios where, say, for instance, recording a drummer who's phenomenal and we get it, we get like four songs done in a day or something, which I think is pretty fast. Um, but they're great. Like we didn't need to, we didn't need to do one song a day or two songs a day. Like fucking killed it. Sometimes I've noticed that even if it's awesome, uh, they will, they will feel like we did something wrong because we got done early right? or it moved too fast. Like there's no way that it could possibly be good. And so they start second guessing themselves. And I feel like I have to play like this weird <laughs> psychological game to get them to get out of their own way. Yeah, that's a tough one. It's all psychological, right? It's hard to convince someone otherwise when they have that idea in their head that for something to be great, it has to take a long time. Like I said before, I think the proof just has to be in the product, right? It's about once once you can prove to them that that it's coming out good, you know, with with it being done in a short amount of time, then they'll just trust me, I think, you know. Uh, other than that, you know, I just have to be like, yo, trust me. Like, it's going to be good. Trust me, it's going to be good. You just have to keep saying that. And eventually they might. Eventually. Well, like I said, yeah, it's it, then when it comes out or when you send them the first mix, they're like, oh, holy shit. You know, and that happens a lot with vocals too, which is why I started tracking with auto-tune on for vocalists, which I know a lot of people don't like to do that. But, you know, it's like, I think you have to do things along the way that give the artist confidence. And I think that, for instance, with vocalists, you know, when you're tracking a vocalist singing and they're hearing back their takes without tune, without reverb, without delay it's uninspiring and they're going to be like, oh man, like I'm really shitting the bed. Like this sounds like crap. Um, and I know a lot of producers that do that. They'll just record bone dry and the artist is always bummed. But I like to go the other direction and I like to do auto-tune while they're tracking, reverb, everything, compression, my full vocal chain. That's going to be basically the final mix vocal chain I like the vocalist to track into. Because then they can go and do their take and they can come in and listen to it and be like, whoa, I sound awesome, you know? I think that also helps in choosing takes too, not to go like ramble too much now about vocal shit, but... No, it's okay. Yeah, I, I got there, so I'll go, I'll go there. Yeah, ramble. Yeah, I think like when it comes down to choosing vocal takes, it's another thing where I don't want to stress too much about it has to be perfect. I'm going to put auto-tune on. I'm going to audition the take with auto-tune on. I'm going to track the take with auto-tune on and we'll listen to it. And if it sounds good, it's good, you know? Um, and then I'll use Melodyne to guide the vocal into the auto-tune for it to hit properly if there's a note that's off. But I think, you know, with vocalists, especially when you have someone do something like a hundred times, eventually you're going to get diminishing returns. You know, you're going to hit that certain point where they're not really feeling it anymore and the vibe's not right and they're frustrated and tired and hungry and, thirsty and it's like with certain things like vocals i think it's important to get the 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 performer stoked 
and that creates trust, you know? And then when they hear it fully done and they go, cool, wow. Oh my God, I did that in, I did that in two takes and it sounds great. So you're right. We can do something quickly and it'd be awesome. I think that's the large part of Dan's process with, with us is that even when we're writing, we're not writing with like shitty tones and we're, you know, like just horrible, basic, you know, drum presets or whatever. It's like, it's basically a 90% finished mix. So that way, like our choices that we're, that we're, you know, doing on the way in, like whether it's like choosing a guitar tone or something like that, we're basically making that decision in the room or in my mind where I'm like, yeah, it's going to be like pretty much this and I'm excited about it. I'm going to track better. You know what I mean? So, and then when we get the mix back, it's not like this whole like, whoa, you know, like everything's changed. It's basically what we've been tracking to. It's what we wrote with. So, you know, I feel like that's a huge mental, you know, a positive thing mentally when you're doing that is that it sounds sick. So the song's going to get written way faster. <laughs> Create trust by sounding sick right yeah. off the bat. <laughs> Big time. I think that uh, that's one of the biggest problems with modern recording is tracking in a way that sounds mediocre Yep. with the idea of making it good later. I think that that's one of the, like I'm all about technology, but I do think that that's one of the elements that got kind of lost a little bit uh, when the new technology came around that I do think people are starting to get back now. But there was a time period where, like, I remember producers didn't even give a fuck about making things sound good on the way and They were afraid to. They are actually afraid to, which I think is really weird because committing might be, like, the best thing you can learn how to do. Oh, for real, man. Yeah. Yeah, dude, people perform differently when it sounds great. Yeah. Like, it's so inaccurate to get a mediocre sound and then try to get great performances. Like, it's so hard to judge. So hard. And it's like you said, you have the ability nowadays to do it. Yeah, so why not? It's so old school to be like, well, you know, we got to record your vocal dry as a bone because, you know, we're going to take up, you know, take up too much resources in the computer. Like CPU. Bro, like, <laughs> you got to, you seen the new Mac Pros? Like, yeah. get yourself one of those. Like, you're good. You can, you can literally record into a full mix. And that's where templates come in handy too sometimes for me. Like, I have a vocal template that I keep on hand that I can pull up with one click in Pro Tools. I just, it's got my record tracks. It's got my lead tracks, my backups, my harmonies, my pads, like everything's ready. So it's like, it's another one of those things where when someone's inspired to do something, you know, if we're sitting there and Courtney's like, oh, I did have a vocal idea for this song. I'll be like, okay, let's go do it. You know, vocal chains up, (laughs) like go strike while the iron's hot. You might never have this idea again. You could record it into your phone, but while you have the idea and while you're psyched on the idea, record it. Who knows? It might even be the final take. <laughs> Let's just try it. Yeah. How long did it take you to put together that template? A long time. I've gone through a lot of tweaks and uh, revisions over the years. I honestly don't even think it's perfect. I'm always tweaking it. I'm always adding stuff. I could tell you what it is if you want to know. Sure, why not? Okay. It'll still never sound the way it does when you use it, you know? I'm fine if it does too I don't care so my main mic that I use oh I use one of two I either use a Perlman TM1 uh, which is like you know it's like a U47 clone and this this dude over here in LA his name's Dave Perlman he makes you know custom clones I went and 
saw him and he hand wired it for me. It's it's an awesome mic, not that expensive either. So I'll either use that or I use the Bach U195. Also like the Sound Deluxe U195, either one of those. Or 7B if it's screaming, I'll use that. But that always goes into my Avitas MA5, which I love because it's got the 28K boost button, which gives you like this cool brightness. Have you ever used the MA5? No. It's dope. It's, it's like a Neve circuit. So I'll go into that and then I hit the distressor, of course, which I love. It's beautiful. Oh, it's the best. And then once it hits Pro Tools, I've got... First thing is actually the Waves NS1, the noise suppressor, which I love because it just helps smooth out all the white noise and like little shuffling and stuff in between words. It's like, it's actually, uh, it's like a post-production tool. They use it for cleaning up dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it's just that it's like a one fader. If you're using it, it's one fader yeah. and it's just, you know, it's, there's no latency. So I track with it on, which is dope. And then I'll hit auto tune like EFX usually. And then I hit a waves REQ six where I'm taking off, taking off lows, probably up to like a hundred. Then I'm boosting highs probably at like 10, eight, six, just high end. And then I'm hitting, um, Good old gain reduction by JST, which I think is the coolest vocal plugin. It's a good one. Yeah, I love it. I just, you have to use it in very small amounts because it's so intense. Very aggressive. <laughs> Dude, that thing is, that thing, oh man, you could go really wrong with that thing, but you can also go super right with it. Like, I, it's I a high it. powered weapon. Dude, it's so high powered. Like, if you just leave it, like the preset it comes on is gnarly. Like I turn that sleigh like almost all the way down because it's just so intense. So I usually turn that down. I even do parallel on it. I do like a 50 to 80% mix because it's so intense. Because I'm usually on the distressor, I'm usually hitting like anywhere between 6 and 12 dB of gain reduction. But if I'm doing screaming, I'll do like, I'll just go all the way to the red just because I think it sounds cool and like use the distortion mode and stuff. So I feel like most of the compression work is done on the distressor anyway. So the gain reduction is just that little kind of sparkle and edge to it. After that, it's going to go either fab filter de-esser or waves de-esser. One of the two. Depending on what. If I need to go in like surgically, if it's someone that has, you know, like certain people have very specific S ranges where mm-hmm. it's like a whistle. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll use the fab filter for, for that. Because I feel like okay. it's good at just going into that, that narrow band. But I like the Waves one because it to me, it's almost more of just like a, a, a high-end compressor. And I think it's got a cool sound. So sometimes I'll use both in a row. Just the Fab one to get like a little bit out. And then the Waves one to like, you know, kind of get that active high-end multi-band compression going. Then I'll hit my vocal bus. That, that's pretty much it on the channel. Hit the vocal bus and we'll do... You make fun of me, but we'll do a CLA vocals. Dude, that's such a good one. Okay, you like it? Good. I get made fun of for using it. <laughs> so uh, CLA vocals and CLA effects, that's a plugin that people make fun of, but it's been on like 95% of Nail the Mixes. Dude, it's so good. Yeah, everyone uses it. It's it's yeah. so uh, It's so widely used, and everybody feels kind of weird about using it, but they use it anyways. Because it sounds awesome. Yeah. Did you hear my reaction? You heard You heard how I brought it up. I was like, well, I used this one thing. Yeah. That's how <laughs> everybody is about it. Like, 
there's some weird stigma about it, but I don't get it because it sounds incredible. It has a sound. Like I like plugins that have a sound to it. I feel like I use it like just for little touches of stuff. Like I love the um, the compressor on it. It's great just for the vocal bus. I use the push setting on it. I'll usually turn off the EQs on it because I want to do that elsewhere, but I'll do like the push setting and then I, I turn it to quarter delay. I keep that like all the way down just to have a little delay going. And I, also I don't use sends, so I do everything on, on my vocal bus. I just have different stacks of buses where I do my processing on so that when I print stems, I'm not screwing myself by having to go and solo all my you know effect returns with each bus. I'll do a little bit of the delay on there. I'll do the tight reverb, turn off the stereo shit, call it a day on that. Oh, you know what? Before that, actually, I'll do a, what's it called? The UAD Poltec. I love a lot for vocals. I'll do like a 12 or 16K boost on that, which that's a big one. I just, I think it's a really good sounding EQ, really sweet and natural. Um, yeah, so that'll hit there and then the CLA and then use uh i've been incorporating another embarrassing plugin in <laughs> just for a little <laughs> and this is this is like my pop vocal chain this is like for singing pop vocals which you know obviously you just take off the you know take off the reverbs and delays and stuff and you're good for screaming with it too but for singing pop vocal so yeah after the cla i will hit a h delay and i'll throw it in ping pong mode and i'll do like a low pass high pass filter delay that's usually doing like a half or a quarter note. So you're getting a little bit of bounce back on the vocal. And like, I've got the mix at like 3%, like just barely anything. Cause if you know, H delay, it's like a pretty, another pretty intense plugin. You yeah. Can't, get that <laughs> <a> hand <laughs> with that feedback too. I mean, like that you'll like, you'll, you'll get to the end of your song and you'll still hear an H delay feeding back. Yeah. It's nonstop. It's just, it's crazy. <laughs> I don't know what it's funny when plugins are like that overpowered like the the feedback goes to 200 percent. i think it starts at like 50 percent. so yeah i'll turn that down to feedback okay so after that i mean oh after that valhalla valhalla room oh that's great default preset i don't touch it you know what's interesting about presets and templates i know they get a bad rap but everyone i know who is good who uses them has said the same thing that it took years to develop it's not just like some template they downloaded off of something and just use it. Like it took meticulous tweaking for a really, really long time and it's never, ever actually done. No, no. I'm always adding stuff to it and finding new things to, to try in there. I did try something cool lately. Have you guys messed with the Goal Floss EQ? Yes. No. That thing's interesting. Yeah. Really interesting. What do you like about it? I feel like it's cool because... Well, it it almost reminds me of like a reverse version of Soothe. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to put it. You know, it like Soothe is kind of like finding the problems and ducking them, where Gold Floss is like finding the cool stuff and boosting it. Yeah, I found it helpful for working on stuff with vocalists that I couldn't quite nail the tone, or maybe like the mic was recorded in like a closet and there's some comb filtering on it or something. You know, it, where it can kind of find the areas where it it got like phased out. And kind of boost those. I like that. So I've been using that a little bit on the vocal chain and sometimes Soothe too. Soothe is, is awesome, like in small amounts, if there's some weird resonances or like I said, if someone recorded in a closet, you know, and you can notch out the comb filtering, it helps with that too. Soothe is a bit of a game-changing plugin, I think. Everyone goes crazy for it. Everyone loves it. Yeah. 
Oh, I left out one thing. I forgot that is actually like one of my favorite plugins too. Is the um the UAD LA two A? That thing's the shit. That thing will go. I like that on the end of every vocal chain because it's just it's just it's smooth and it's like buttery and slow and it's just it's a good finisher to me. One thing that I think is uh, super challenging about what you're talking about is to find something that works like 85% of the time is actually a lot harder than people realize. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It takes a lot of, well, you have to, cause you have to actually like do mixes with it a bunch of times. And then you have to listen to your mix a year later and go, Oh, dude, why'd I do that? All right. Next time I should probably take that off. And then you have to keep doing that. So that's why it takes years. Cause I feel like you don't really realize the mistakes you made till you listen to something you did years back and you're like, ugh. That's a good sign, though. That's a really good sign. I, I hope so. I, I always tell Mike that the Fallen RK album we did sounds like like my mix sucks on it. He tells me it doesn't, but it's it's one of those things where like you're, you're you know you got to be your worst critic and stuff like that. If you don't feel that way about your old stuff, then you're probably not improving. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Definitely. It's just you should feel weird about your old stuff. I think. Yeah. Totally. I think you know, and even at that time, like 2013, you know. Dan was very ahead of his time doing a lot of stuff with, you know, like guitar plugins and stuff, like even the early volume stuff and everything. It was very innovative. It was definitely something that not a lot of people were taking advantage of. And, you know, back then when I got that final mix for that record, and we'd even done the opposite way. We used rail amps for that and we quad tracked. We went crazy on it. Yeah, we went buck wild. Yeah, it was crazy. You know, I, I heard it and I was like, man, this is just the biggest sounding thing ever. You know what I mean? And then, you know, you fast forward seven years and like just the progress of how everything's changed. And, you know, and that's why, like to me, I still listen to the album. I'm still blown away by it. To Dan, you know what I mean? I, no, I still love the album. I'm just critical. Totally. Some, a couple of mixed choices. I'm like, oh, sure. Like, why is my snare being eaten up by my, you know, limiter and like all this crap? Sure, sure. It's just funny to me, like thinking about like, if you were to take those songs and do it now. Yeah. And that's kind of what we've, you know, obviously been doing with Spirit Box, but like it's a, it's a whole other thing because it was just so technical and so crazy. But yeah, like, it, you know, even within five years, like the game has completely changed where everyone, as Dan was saying before, everyone with a MacBook Pro can just run full sessions and do the whole entire production in, in, yeah. on, on a laptop. It's mental. So crazy. And you know what's important about that too is it's important to not be an elitist about it and go... Oh, I'm I'm not using that new shit. It's too easy. Like I'm going, I'm old school, baby. Like I grinded for this. Like I've got my, you know, super complicated template, and I'm gonna, I'm not gonna get these new plugins because you know I've got too much pride, and I'm guilty of that because um like Mike. Th that's how you know not to do it. Yeah, well, I know because <laughs> I learned that by do by just opening yourself up to those things, you can be so much better. It just gives you a leg up. It's not. It's like you said. It's it's people can use the same things that you have, but it's not going to sound the same because, you know, you know how to use them. So it was like when we were working on the stuff for Spirit Box, Mike was like, you know, you should get this, uh, this plugin called Parallax for bass. I was like, oh man, like, I don't know, man. Like that seems too easy. Like it's just one sound. And like, I feel like that's like, that's cheating. And he's like, dude, just trust me. Just like download it. And I downloaded it and I literally like, it's indispensable for me. I can't use anything else. Same thing with Archetype Nolly. He was like, 
bro, you got to download this thing. I was like, oh, I don't know, man. Like, I like guitar <laughs> rig. <laughs> like, I literally fought him on it. I was like, I was like, dude, no, like, I love the tones I get with guitar rig. Like, it's the, that's just my thing, man. And he's like, Dan, just please just do it. I'm like, fine, I'll demo it. Dude, I use it in every mix. It's the best. It's just the best amp sim I think I've ever used. And I'm I'm blissfully okay with using that in parallax. I think that's the shit. And that's an example of like, I know that what I do to that, I know how I treat those plugins is different than other people are going to treat them. So I don't feel guilty for using the, the quick fix plugins. Why do you think that producers are weird about new gear? Because I've felt that way too. Like, I don't want to fuck trying this new thing. Yeah. I use this. And uh, it's something I tried to break myself of, but I've seen it a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot. Like, it's a very natural way to feel for some reason. Yeah, I wonder why that is, man. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's jealousy. Comfort zone? I think it's a comfort thing, honestly. I think, you know, like, you work so hard. Because, like, I'm not a mixer, you know what I mean? So it's, like, for you guys, like, you work so hard to get to a point where you're so familiar and you have these templates or you have these, you know, this whole way of doing things. And then you get a random client who's like, hey, you heard that new Nolly plugin? And you're like, why would I even think about that when we have like the best thing here, you know? So guitar players get that way too, though, about their amps and stuff. Um, and oh, yeah. the kind of pick they use, like all kinds of stuff like that. Guitar players get super precious about dumb shit. It's true. Yeah. I think a lot of it is like, I don't, for me, like, I like looking back to, to how I feel when like I see something that's a quick fix plugin or a plugin that someone's like, Oh dude, you got to get this. It's so much easier. I feel like it's almost like an ego thing. I think it's it comes down to ego. I feel like my ego is like, oh, dude, like I've worked so hard to <laughs> not use not use quick fix plugins. You know, I've got my I've got my way of doing it. Like, there's no way like I'm gonna do that because I'm not like those kids that just pull up templates. You know, I'm better than that. And then I think a part of it is also jealousy. Like, <laughs> like that's not that's not fair that these kids get to go and have <laughs> something. I grew up recording on a Tascam four-track tape recorder. That was I was 12 years old. That was where I made my first demo with my band. And it sounded like shit. And I made a thousand shitty demos after that. And it was only in the last, whatever, five, ten years I started making things that I was like, okay, this sounds really good. It took me that long to do it. I'm 30 now, you know? So like I think that it's it's just being salty. Like, oh man, like it's not fair. Like these kids. These kids get to pull up, you know, a template they downloaded online and sound amazing. And I had to work so hard for it. Like, that's what it is to me. So I try to not be like that. Like you were saying, it's hard. You have to, like, force yourself to not be like that. Because then that's stopping yourself from getting better and progressing and changing and evolving with the technology and the times and stuff. Sometimes I get that way about Nail the Mix students. Because it's so crazy to be able to, like, start learning off of Sugar tracks or something <laughs> it's so unrealistic and uh it kind of like gives people the wrong impression like I, I let me just say i totally back what we're doing but i've definitely thought about it from all angles yeah and there is this one angle where it's like no none of these people are going to ever work with a sugar except for one maybe right this is completely unrealistic you don't get to work with bands this good starting out that Part of like paying your dues is working with shitty bands for a long time, 
making shitty bands sound better than making less shitty bands sound better than that. Eventually, hopefully working with great bands, but you don't start with Opeth and Mashuga tracks or Gojira tracks. It's just not reality. And I feel like that kind of gives people the wrong idea. And then sometimes I get that that feeling of like, fuck you for starting with Bishuga when I had to work with like <laughs> 500 of the worst bands ever. I got a solution for you, man. You should just pull up some of the shittiest tracks you've ever worked on and then have your students work on those. We do that. Okay, good. We have a, a program called Mix Rescue where... Um, where we take students submitted tracks and we give them, we give those out too. So good. Yeah. And though that one's way more realistic because it's all like shitty local bands. That's the whole idea. Sure. So I think, I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, even with guitar players or other musicians, like, you know, when the, when the fractal first came out, for instance, you know, everybody was buying them because, you know, you'd have like the, the top guys playing them and they would, they would get these things and they'd sit there and be like, well, this doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good. Like, I can't get it to sound good, you know? And it's like, well, for one, it's because you don't have their hands. But for two, it's because you're going to have to spend a long time. So in my opinion, it's like even even when the, those students or whatever get those type of tracks or whatever, there's still yeah. such a huge learning curve, you know? Like, oh, yeah. Mike, yeah. You, should, you should talk about the hands thing because I love the hands. when you talk about hands. Dude, the hands all, thing is real. It's all yeah. about the hands. It's, it it's all it's all about it's all about not having you know bitch picking, and it's all about you know <laughs> playing playing your shit tight. And it's it, it, the best analogy that I heard, um, and this was years ago. It was like when Misha was hanging out with Steph Carpenter um, from Deftones, and Steph just randomly was like, "Oh yeah, I threw up all my patches on the exchange." And, you know, back then Misha had it and he was like, what? Like you're giving away all your secrets or whatever. And he was just like, even, even if, you know, so-and-so takes that patch, they're not going to sound like me. They're not going to play like yeah. me. Like, I don't know. I, I, I probably couldn't, I don't think there's anyone that plays like Steph. That's why they sound the way that they sound. You know what I mean? Totally. So I think the hands thing is real. I think. 100% real. Yeah. And the song and the riffs and, and going off of that too, there's always the, the syndrome where people think that a mix is good because the song's good. Right. And to use a really like kind of basic example is bands that say they want their mix to sound like Nirvana. Yeah. They want their mix to sound like Smells Like Teen Spirit. Yeah. Okay. But they don't sound that way. Well, hold on. It's like, okay, take the song away. Listen to listen to the mix. It's <laughs> it's an amazing song. It It you know, influenced the generation. It said so much. It, it stands for so much. The mix is not good. <laughs> the mix isn't good. If you're going to no. critique the mix on that song, it's not good. I don't think anyone even noticed or cared. Right. They just said, wow, this is cool. But people get confused. And then it's it's like, that goes for any genre, obviously. That goes for, that was just a stupid example I thought of. But yeah, I think it comes down to the song. And I like, I always say, and I'm sure you've heard this a million times, but like, it's hard to ruin a good song with a bad mix, but you can't make a bad song a good song with a great mix. I totally agree with that. I'm thinking of a situation I was in once where uh, it just so happened to work this way because of like a scheduling issue that couldn't be avoided. Uh, there was one band at my studio who had to record drums 
And then another band had to come in for five days to record drums in the middle of their session. And so band A was generous and let just got lost for five days, let band B use their stuff. But the agreement was nothing's getting moved. Mm -hmm. So exact same drums, exact same mics, exact same everything. Like literally just drummer A left and drummer B arrived and played on the kit. And it sounded, it couldn't sound more different. Yeah. There you go. Sounded radically different, like not the same drums at all. But yeah. Literally everything was the same. Yep. Yeah. Mixed templates too. You know, you can put the same mixed template on two different songs and the mix will sound nothing alike. And that's why templates are important too. People get it confused, right? They're like, oh man, like I, I don't use templates. Like I go from scratch, you know? And it's actually, you're, you're kind of, you're not to knock anyone that does that because I respect that. Like, and obviously it depends if you're switching from metal to indie. Yeah, you sure. Okay. But like, to have a template that you just start with is super important because, and I was just talking to, to Zach about this, I think like most of the the effective work in a mix gets done within the first 30 to 45 minutes. Would you agree with that? Yes. I think that if, if like the, the, the first, let's say hour that you're listening to a song, the moves you're making then, if you have everything in, right, as long as you're not just starting, you know, listening to just the kick and the snare. Say you have everything in and you have like a, a a bit of a template on everything and you can just listen to the song and make moves. That hour is like, that's crucial. I feel like that you can get the mix to 90% in that hour. So I think that's where templates help a lot. Cause then you can get to the, the point where you spend 10 minutes prepping it with your templates, most importantly, like a drum template and a guitar, you know, somewhat of a guitar chain and somewhat of a vocal chain. Then you get that 40 minutes in. I totally agree if you know what you're doing or, you know, if you're, if you have the right starting point, you're going to be in a good position by the time that hour's up. So the fastest mixers I know that are also the best, the best fastest mixers I know have this thing in common. Like they all have this thing in common, which is that their prep is always hundred percent out of the way and streamlined as fuck. Yep. There's almost always going to be some sort of a template involved and, their whole philosophy is to not reinvent the wheel where they don't need to. Um, yep. Like, and they, they kind of live and die by that. And it allows them to get mixes done in like an hour or an hour and a half. And they're in no way inferior to those mixes that take 12 hours. Sometimes they're even better. Of course. Well, it's like, I always say that when you're paying someone like an artist to do something, I do consider a mixer an artist when you're paying an artist to do something, you're not paying for the time they're spending working on it. You're paying for the time that they've spent, all the years they've spent honing in on their craft to get to that point where they then work on that song for you. You're not paying for that that actual physical time. You're paying for what it took to get yeah. to that time and then give that to you. It's like tattoo artists that charge by the hour versus by the piece. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it's, you're, <laughs> you can't be shocked when like the guy spends 45 minutes and he's, completely done and he's like that'll be 500 bucks you know you're like well it only took you 45 minutes like, yeah but it took me 10 fucking years to get to the <laughs> yeah. point where i could do that in 45 minutes. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly exactly it's art man you can't that's the value of art i worked with a mixer once who um he mixed super fast like 45 minutes till done and his mixes were great there's nothing wrong with them they're actually really fucking great but 
if he sent like the first or second, third mix back the same day, the bands would feel like he was just fucking around. So what he would do is finish the first mix, then wait a week and send it just so that they would feel like he spent more time on it. Then they'd never complain. And they never found out that he actually got it done the first day in 45 minutes. Yeah, I've for sure done that before. <laughs> Dude, you have to sometimes because people don't get it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't, you don't want to think that the person you're working with is fucking around, I guess, or not taking it seriously. Yeah, I think I think some artists view mixing to be such a... And of course it is, but some artists are, you know, they view it as such a crazy, intense process where like you're locking yourself in the room and like, you know, it's going to take 20 hours just to get a guitar tone or whatever. But in reality, like, you know, like we've been saying, the ones that are, that are prepared and have, you know, the sounds ready to go. Yeah, they can probably do it within an hour. And I think it's cool now that that's, that's an actual thing. And we're at the point where someone could do a full mix in 45 minutes or an hour. But again, I think, you know, for the artists and the ones that are unaware, unaware of, you know, the process and stuff, yeah, they would hear that they would, they would get that back in 45 minutes and be like, is everything okay? You know, it could be the best mix in the world. <laughs> yeah. And to the artist's credit or defense, I think usually what happened is that they previously worked with somebody who was full of shit. Sure. So they had, stu- <laughs> yeah. what well, I call it studio PTSD. Yeah. So they had mm-hmm. a bad experience with a mixer that either fucked them over or, you know, did just throw shit together quickly and didn't care. And so, you know, it's kind of like baggage in a relationship. They're walking into their next studio relationship with that previous baggage. And uh, sometimes you kind of got to break them of that. And sometimes just there's no way around it. So you just got to be crafty. I get that a lot. I actually like, I love that when like you're working with a band and, and they'll be like, oh man, that's awesome. Our old producer didn't make us do that. Or like our old producer would have done this or our, our old producer recorded us dry. I'll be like, yes. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> just once again, ego, ego. Everyone's got an ego, man. Like it's just, that's, that's how it is. Big or small, we all have it. You can either work for you or against you, basically. But it's there. Yeah, It's just important to be aware of it and how to manage it. So, Dan, out of curiosity, um, I know a lot of metal producers and mixers often talk about wanting to get out of metal. Like, that's kind of a common conversation in metal. But most people don't ever manage it for whatever reason. Like, I think they work so hard at metal and then they work like a tenth as hard at the other genre. Mm-hmm. And so they're not usually good enough at the other genre to leave. Like they just don't want to start over in another genre. And, uh, but how did you make it happen? Oh man, that's like a whole story. I mean, yeah, I want to hear it. I think it was kind of like I grew up playing in only metal bands, like only heavy bands. And I think as a musician, I was very closed minded throughout high school and throughout all those years, I really didn't listen to too much of the stuff that was on the radio. And I didn't really listen to other genres. I was like, just hardcore, like, I'm a metal dude. I'm going to be a metal producer, engineer, touring guitarist, whatever. Um, And then, you know, I just met people along the way that kind of helped me see that there's other genres out there. Um, You know, namely, 
you know, me and Mike's good friend, my buddy DJ, our buddy DJ, he was in uh, volumes with me. And even starting in like 2010, he was producing like hip hop and pop stuff. And I was always like, damn, like, that's so cool. Like, I don't know anything about that world. Like, I love to get into it. And um, he's the one that like kind of was like, bro, listen, like this metal shit's cool. But like, you have to start working on, he call it real, real music. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> you, you can imagine how he'd say that, Mike. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Dude, you got to do some, you got to do some real shit. You got to do some real stuff, like, man. Real stuff. And I was like, okay. And, you know, he kind of brought me in on like, you know, these pop sessions he was doing and, you know, we'd, we'd work on artists together and, you know, and then I, I built my studio here in Woodland Hills, California in 2012. And having a studio definitely helped with the pop artist thing because they want a, you know, a, a place to come to where they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to the studio. Like it's more legit than coming to my bedroom. I think bands are like a little more lenient with that kind of thing. So I think that helped me be able to have more clients for, for mixing and, and producing and, and vocal production that were in the pop world. So yeah, I think I just kind of fell into it through that and built a network through that. And it turned into a thing where I was working with a handful of pop artists a year and then I do like one metal band and that kind of went on for a while. <laughs> and it was funny cause I actually noticed that, um, working on mostly pop made me a lot worse at working on metal. Well, they're completely different. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was kind of having a balance where it was like a five to one ratio. I noticed I was like, okay, cool. I'm crushing it with vocal production, vocal editing. You know, I can mix a beat fine. Like that's easy. You know, there's not too much mixing in the pop instrumental world. Um, but like when it came to doing metal, I found myself like being more timid because, you know, working on pop, it's just, you're not using as aggressive processing and everything's a lot more, um, I don't know. Everything's just, just, it's just, it's less work, I guess is a way to, a good way to put it. You know, it's just, it's not as hard. So yeah, I feel like I kind of circled back eventually to now where like I try to do a pretty even amount of both and uh I'm still able to have all my relationships I made in that world and I still do a lot of a lot of stuff in that world and it helps pay the bills I enjoy it a lot you know um and it's like I have that yin and yang which is awesome um but I had to kind of like it was I had to like kind of refine myself I had to kind of reinvent myself because because somewhere along the line you know, you keep chasing the pop thing and then you're like, but hold on one second. Why'd I get into this? You know, why'd I get into doing music? It's because I like heavy music. Mm -hmm. So it was like that part of me was missing. So now I have a good balance or I'm working toward having a good balance at least. I mean, working with Spirit Box in this last year, you know, the my main things I did, I do a lot of work for uh, a pop duo, R&B alt pop duo called Emotional Oranges. And I've been working with them a lot. I do vocal production and mixing for them. And we we made like three albums in the last maybe, well, we're finishing the third album now, but in the last like 18 months. And then I did a record with uh, Dayseeker and Spirit Box. And then I've been um, writing and mixing for volumes. So it's like I have kind of a, a cool balance going where I feel like it's nice to have both of those things going on. Well, like I was saying before, like when Spearbox first started and we were like, oh man, it'd be great to have Dan on board. I feel like at that point, Dan, it was because you were so far into the pop world and I was like, I don't even know if he 
mixes metal anymore. You know what I mean? And I, I didn't know if I did. Yeah, I know. I remember. I remember you being. <laughs> I remember you being like, you brought me right back in. You know what I mean? So yeah, at that time you were like completely removed from it. Yeah, there's been years where I did I maybe did one metal thing and twelve al- alternative or pop things, but it's for the better. You know, it's like it's comfort zone shit, and it's personalities. It's diff- both worlds involve such different types of personalities, and I've seen every type of personality imaginable and um it's very different you know it's very very different different world there's more money involved in in pop music naturally so you meet different types of people in that world and the metal world is like man i don't know it's it's just it's just so different it's so hard to describe like it's its own beast for sure jumping back and forth it's just so interesting there's so much to learn from both. But I think just the main thing I took back from working in the pop world was the vocal thing and how important a, a simple song and a simple vocal melody and how far that can take you. So I took that back. And that's that's like, I think it helps. I hope it helps. Like with Spearbox, I'm trying to just take, when it comes to like writing vocals with Courtney, I'm trying to take what I learned from producing pop artists and I'm trying to apply that to her without overthinking it. So I, I like to hope that that gives me a leg up and that the years that I worked in that, you know, benefit me and benefit the the people that I work with. Mike, is that part of the reason that you wanted to work with him because of uh, his uh, skills in pop? Dan's sense of melody is just out of this world. It's insane. He just knows how to make a part. He know, He knows, he gets it. You know what I mean? And it's to the point where, you know, after, when we started quarantining and stuff like that and we were thinking about single options. Holy Roller wasn't meant to be a single whatsoever. It was meant to be like really? a, no, not at all. Mm-hmm. It was meant. It was meant to be like a almost That's like surprising. a surprising. Yeah, like it was meant to be like a palate cleanser on the record because the record is so so far. It's it's very like it's fucking and, rock. It's it's such a single. You think so? Hell yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Fuck yeah. Interesting. Hell yeah. Well, the re- you know it's meant to be just like a two minute forty five second get in get out. You know, pal- isn't that what a single is? <laughs> I, I maybe <laughs> you're describing a single. <laughs> maybe I am. Maybe I am. Yeah. But at the time, to- at the time, there was no other songs on the record that um, just Again, had you're just describing had yelling. A single, yeah. But there was no other song on the record that had just yelling. And I don't feel comfortable engineering singing. And the reason being is because fair enough. Is because Dan just has such a high bar set for that, and I've seen we've been fortunate enough to work with him in the studio and I've seen what he's done with songs like Rule of Nines and Blessed Be, which I feel like Blessed Be, when we put that out, really put us on the map. And I was like, well, I know the song's different, but what was another fa- another factor here that you know played into this? It's like, well, Dan recorded the vocals. So clearly there's something there and I don't want to, I don't want to mess up, you know, the process here. We've, we've set the bar here. This has done this much this song has yelling, so I'll do it. But this is the only one that we can do because every other song has a heavy amount of singing and I'm not prepared to make things go the other way because, you know, Dan wasn't there to record the vocals. I strongly believe that, you know, because it was him behind the board and it was because it was him doing everything and recording everything that those songs hit in that way. So, um, Thanks, Mike. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very specific with vocal and vocal melodies. I think that's that's... That's just what I try to provide the most, I think, for you guys, like in this process. Like, I want to give you guys, to give you guys, like, the most effective 
part of me, like that's what I want to like offer up the most. That, and that's what I've been that's what I've been trying to do is just like bring that other side, bring what I've learned into this world. I think that gives us a leg up. I, would I think that so. that's something that's missing in metal. It pretty sure. much is for the not not hundred percent. But vocal production tends to be an afterthought. Right. Or traditionally, it's been an afterthought in right. metal. However, if you look at the biggest metal bands, they have great vocal production. Yep. Great vocalists yeah. and great yep. vocal production. Like Slipknot, uh, it's not just that Joey was loose and had that that meth energy. Like um, <laughs> <laughs> That's what it sounded like. Yeah. Uh, those vocals are loud as fuck yep. and super intelligible Dude, and yeah. incredible. And then, I mean, even Lamb of God, there's no, there's a reason for why they got as big as they got. If you listen to their mixes, vocals are pop loud, basically. Yep. Yeah, I don't think dude, it's, they I are. don't think it's an accident. Yeah. Randy, you had Randy on the show, didn't you? Uh, no, I had Machine and Chris Adler. Chris Adler. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to not give Courtney the credit though, too, because I also want to say like, Courtney makes it easy to go there because she listens to a lot of pop and a lot of R&B and a lot of weird stuff that isn't metal. I think she told me she doesn't even really listen to that much metal. Right, Mike? She doesn't. I mean, she's really like... Not surprised. Dude, she's <laughs> she's just so awesome to work with. Like, she's just so open to everything. It, I, I can only do what I can do. I can only give what I can give, right? But she's so on the same page. She's so on board with trying new things and she's so on board with taking the melodies to where we take them and she's a great writer and so it's you know like i can only be as good as who i'm working with so let's not leave that out <laughs> you know <laughs> i just want to say like that she's so talented man like and and she's it takes someone like that to to see that there is something greater than the the glass ceiling of of metal to reach as a vocalist she recognizes that and she's that's she's very big on that I guess it would be pretty difficult to hit a higher bar with a vocalist that isn't down. Oh man, yeah, she's totally capable. down. She's totally down, and um, I'm just there to like push her to try new shit. And she's always bringing cool. She always like plays me the coolest references too. She's always playing me like. Um, she sent me a playlist um, before I came up to Canada the first time for her references for songs. I think I have it on here, dude. Like. She listens to some really cool eclectic shit, and I think that that's definitely represented in. Uh, here we go, Daddy Dan's Spirit Box inspo. <laughs> Dude, we got first of all a lot of these artists I haven't even heard of, but we got like Fantagram, Massive Attack, FKA Twigs, Death Cab for Cutie, James Blake, Tegan and Sarah, Broken Social Scene, Tanache, Active Child, The Midnight Division, like cool shit. York, I mean, you can hear you can hear some of that in Courtney's vocals for sure. I mean, that's yeah. that's an obvious influence. Sabrina Claudio, like this shit is these aren't metal references. So I think that just kind of that attitude toward like we're not gonna just kind of fall into the ether of every other metal band and what they do with their vocals. You know, Courtney really puts a lot of energy into striving to make sure that. It's something that's different. So that's really fun to work with for me. I think that uh, metal vocalists typically are not down to do that sort of thing. Yep. Question about incorporating those kinds of influences. Have you ever been in a scenario where a band, uh, you were talking about bands wanting to sound like Smells Like Teen Spirit. 
Have you had bands want you to do something that totally doesn't sound anything like them at all? Like it's like totally unrealistic and out of left field. Well, I don't know so much bands, but mm, I can't really think of anything off the top of my head. But what I get a lot or what I've gotten a lot in the past is, is um, as far as like vocals go for vocal treatment, you know, people being like, yo, like, I want to sound like this person. What is what does he or she have on their voice or what is what's going on here? And I'll play it back and it's it's often just dry vocal. You know, it's just the person. That's what they sound like. Right. <laughs> but I'm trying, I, that that kind of is that kind of might be the only kind of situation like that. No, I haven't um I haven't done that, but I have had a lot of situations where the band has made me do things that I really didn't want to do. Mike Stringer, uh, the guy right here, happened to be in my studio when a band was was doing that to me. And this band, oh my God. they're my really good friends. I love these guys. And I've done, we're actually going to finish their second record soon, but it's my buddies in Black Sheep Wall, if you know of Black Sheep Wall. And uh, they're like a really experimental kind of doom, doom metal band, I guess you could call them. And basically, this is like a whole other story, but... Essentially, they made an album with me that was like an hour long, and pretty much the whole album was like on one note. You gotta listen to it. If you haven't heard it, you should listen to this album. It's called "I'm Going to Kill Myself," <laughs> and the goal of the album—I <laughs> like that title. The goal yeah. of the album was to make the listener by the end, by the time they get to the end of the album, they want—they wanted the listener to want to end his or her life. Like, <laughs> that's why the album is called I'm Going to Kill Myself. Mental. And um, the album's just all drone riffs. Dum, bum, 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 bum. For five minutes, ten minute songs. And then the last song on the, the album is called Metallica. And the song is 25, maybe 26 minutes long. And uh, the way that the song was recorded was the drummer, my buddy Jackson. He's an absolute genius. And he decided to torture me. And he sent me like a hundred pages of tempos and time signature changes and was like, hey, dude, go down this rabbit hole with me. This is my idea for the song. There's going to be a different click track for the drums and a different click track for the guitars. We're going to record the whole song separately. And at the end, you got to trust me, we're going to put them together and it's going to line up. And he's like, also, the song is 25 minutes long. (laughs) And I was like, all right, I'll do it. And... It was for sure the worst time I've ever had working on anything because it took me like two weeks to make the click tracks and then it took us like a week straight of recording to get the song right. And um, it's pretty gnarly, dude. It's pretty gnarly. Mike was there for one of the recording sessions and he literally looked like he wanted to kill himself after about five hours. Mission accomplished. Yeah. I don't know how all of it came together. It literally... Like Dan's not even joking. It's the same notes, just the same whatever note he chose. And it's just that in different like patterns. And they drone for the same amount of time. And I was watching him track guitar and the whole time I'm just like, I like I'm just fucking never seen anything like it. It was just insane. It was so grueling to sit there. <laughs> that wasn't really your question, but for some reason, your question made me think about that because I just thought it was an extraordinary recording experience that I'm glad I did it now, but 
that was something a band did to me that really went against anything that I would ever want to do. Can you explain the two different clicks to me? No. (laughs) (laughs) No. I just don't understand. Me neither. Well, I remember when I was there and I was watching him track, he he had all these pieces of paper and weren't there different colors on the paper? Dude. He had, yeah, he had 18 or 20 pages next to him. Oh, are you talking about the guitar when they were doing guitars, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and, they and, used symbols to notate the the different notes. The drummer wrote all the music and he would present, he present the riffs to the band like, okay, a one is like, is this shape? A, a second fret is this shape? Um, a hold for this amount of time is this color? Dude, it was like hieroglyphics. We had this sheet of paper that... We had a section in the song that was like seven minutes long that was called the hieroglyphics section. And he literally wrote out how to play the Why? part. Dude, I don't know. But Different he wrote out how to play the part. That was the part you were there from. You were there for when we did the hieroglyphics part. Yeah, yeah. He would be like, yeah, I'm on triangle. Now we're going to get to square. You know, like, yeah, it's mind blowing. And the guitarist read it. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're all down with it. Like we were all sitting there drinking shitty ass tequila at 12 p.m. and uh, Coors Lights and just these guys were just hammered reading hieroglyphics and we we're all just laughing our asses off until it like got so torturous that it wasn't funny anymore. Then we were all just kind of staring at each other like, yo, what are we is, doing? This yeah. is crazy. And I remember, are they sadistic? Y- yeah, dude, they're, they're hardcore about it. You got to look them up. You got to check this album out, man. One of the best parts about that album is that the title is, yeah, you're going to see it in a second. The title is, I want to kill myself. But then the album art is like, what is it? Is it two like cartoon smiley face, like Teletubbies almost? Black Sheep Wall, I'm going to kill myself. Yeah. I like that cover. It's rad. It's insane. But yeah, the song's called Metallica. That's the one you want to listen to if you can get through it. This is a great album cover. I know. It's fantastic. Who did this? They have a buddy that that drew it for them. I don't know. But uh, I'm actually, yeah, I'm finishing another album with them that we uh, recorded four years ago. We're going to finish it, I think, next month. We took a pretty long break. There's something with some interpersonal stuff within the band. but Do people actually listen to it? Yeah, they have some underground fans. They're like one of those kind of culty bands. Dude, that's the thing about those drone bands and those like noise bands, people, the people who love it, love it. They love it. It's crazy. But everyone that I've showed that song, that that album to, I'm always like, yo, just give yourself the challenge. Take the challenge. Listen yeah. <laughs> I'll try to take the challenge. I can't guarantee that, uh, that I've got the mental toughness for it. Yeah, take the Metallica challenge. <laughs> give it a shot. So I have a couple questions from listeners for you guys. Cool. Cool. I'm gonna ask. So one from Kenton Smith, which is uh the effects and post processing on Holy Roller are so creative. Do you have a vision going to the effects stage or is it more or less just messing around till something sounds sick? Thank you for the insane music. Go ahead, Mike. The effects as far as like you know, like guitars go or anything, or just in general? I think they mean the the programming. You know how we made it. Yeah, we, we were just, just threw dicking a bunch around. Of shit. Yeah, we just threw a bunch of shit into Pro Tools and I put Isotope Trash and Lil Alter Boy all over the place and yeah, there was no you made it sound reason. cool. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember you were sitting there and you came up with that beginning noise. 
And it was just that. And immediately it was just like, it just started happening. And then two hours. But you played it. That was a guitar. No, it wasn't. Oh, really? No, that's that's that's, that's you. That's all you. You you came up with some random oh. noise in, oh. in uh, your... I don't Sounds even like a guitar. Yeah, it does. It does. But in some library, I can't remember. Probably the one that you were just saying. Oh, and, weird. And then you manipulated it a bit. Yeah, you manipulated a bit. And then like literally two hours went by and it was done. That's funny. I thought that was a, a guitar. I forgot. No. no Shows how much I care, right? <laughs> Do you feel like when it comes to programming, people overthink that stuff? I don't know. I think programming is kind of the time to overthink. But I think in this situation, it kind of served the song that it was underthought because of how just kind of nasty and crusty the programming is. Mm-hmm. Got it. I tend to spend a lot of time with programming, like a lot. That's, I'd say, like, you know, I'll usually when we write, we'll usually start with like one of Mike's riffs and then, you know, we'll get that down and we'll get into like the verse or whatever. And then I'll start pulling up like programming shit and we'll spend some time on that. But then after we finish that and I'll take it home and then that's when I'll finesse the programming stuff. And that's when it's not like, well, we're writing, there's a shitload of time spent on it just to not interrupt the flow. It's usually later. Got it. Where the, the details get fussed over. Like almost like a placeholder. Yeah, Holy Roller, the the breakbeat thing. That song actually, yeah, the breakbeat was the only really programmy thing besides the the first sound. I guess there's some other synth stuff going over the top. There's a shaker too. There's a shaker that's really distorted. Yeah. All right, Calvin Hahn is wondering when mixing songs such as Holy Roller and Blessed Be that involve changing tuning midway through, I'm really interested to know, one, whether you uh, pitch shift the guitar and bass DI or pitch shift the amplified tone, and two, were the guitar and bass DI separated into different tracks dedicated to each pitch, assuming that they probably need to be mixed from scratch again to account for the new frequency regions they occupy after changing pitch in order to sit well with the drums and vocals, etc., constantly. Thanks, and looking forward to hearing more stuff. Um, Mike sent me back DIs of with all in one, so he could tell you about that. Yeah, we just tracked and tuned the guitars down. I had to track guitars and bass for that song when we did it, and yeah, just like each part, just tune down to the part, make sure it's clean, move to the next one, tune down for that part, and then uh, after the fact, I'll go in and then I'll make sure that like, you know we can actually replicate it when we go to play it live with the tuning changes. Um, but yeah, no, we, we, I just sent Dan, um, you know, the left and right for guitar and the bass all in one file. And, um, we just tuned to each part. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't, and to answer the mixing portion of that question, I didn't change any processing depending on the note for the guitars. But like I was talking about before for the bass, when it did get to that low D sharp, I did have to put in that harmonic sub thing under it because there was no low end yeah. left in that tuning. But no, the guitars, the processing stayed the same. Cool. All right, guys. So I think it's a good place to uh, to call it. But uh, I want to thank you both for taking the time to hang out. It's been a pleasure. Same, man. Thank you for having us. Yeah, that was awesome. Can't thank you enough, man. Anytime. Thank you. Okay, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends as well as post them to your Facebook, Instagram, or any social media you use. Please tag me at ALEVY URM Audio. And of course, please tag my guests as well. Till next time. 
Happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.